0: All right, welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are currently reading Angela Y. Davis's Women, Race, and Class. We are on Chapter 7, Women's Suffrage at the Turn of the Century, The Rising Influence of Racism. Middle of page 113. Given the uncamouflaged violence visited upon black people during the 1890s, how could white suffragists argue in good faith that, quote, for the sake of expediency, end quote, they should, quote, stoop to conquer on this color question, end quote. The ostensibly quote, neutral, end quote, stance as assumed by the leadership of the NAWSA with respect to the, quote, color question, end quote, actually encouraged the proliferation of undisguised racist ideas within the ranks of the suffrage campaign. At the Association's 1895 convention, appropriately held in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the most prominent figures in the campaign for the vote, quote, urged the South to adopt women's suffrage as one solution to the Negro problem, end quote. This, quote, Negro problem, end quote, could be simply solved. So Henry Blackwell proclaimed by attaching a literacy qualification to the right to vote. Quote, in the development of our complex political society, we have today two great bodies of illiterate citizens. In the north, people of foreign birth. In the south, people of the African race and a considerable portion of the white population. Against foreigners and Negroes, as such, we would not discriminate. But in every state save one, there are more educated white women than all the illiterate voters, white and black, native and foreign, quote. Ironically, this argument, designed to persuade white Southerners that women's suffrage held great advantages for white supremacy, was initially proposed by Henry Blackwell when he announced his support for the 14th and 15th Amendments. Already in 16, already in 1867, he had addressed an appeal to, quote, the legislatures of the southern states, end quote, urging them to take note of the fact that female enfranchisement could potentially eliminate the black population's impending political power. Quote, consider the result from the southern standpoint. Your four million of Southern white women will counterbalance your four million of Negro men and women, and thus the political supremacy of your white race will remain unchanged, End quote. This renowned abolitionist assured the Southern politicians at that time that women's suffrage could reconcile the North and the South. Quote, capital and population will flow like the Mississippi toward the Gulf, End quote. And as for black people, they, quote, would gravitate by the law of nature toward the tropics. End quote. Quote, the very element which has destroyed slavery would side with the victorious South, and out of the nettle danger, you will pluck the flower safety. End quote. Blackwell and his wife, Lucy Stone, assisted Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony during their 1867 Kansas campaign. That Stanton and Anthony welcomed at this time the support of a notorious Democrat whose program was, quote, woman first, the Negro last, end quote, was an indication that they implicitly assented to Blackwell's racist logic. Moreover, they uncritically described in their history of woman suffrage, the Kansas politicians' fear of black suffrage. Quote, the men of Kansas in their speeches would say, if Negro suffrage passes, we will be flooded with ignorant, impoverished blacks from every state of the union. If women's suffrage passes, we invite to our borders people of character and position of wealth and education. Who can hesitate to decide when the question lies between educated women and ignorant Negroes? End quote. Excuse me. However racist these early postures of the women's movement may seem, it was not until the last decade of the 19th century that the women's suffrage campaign began to definitively accept the fatal embrace of white supremacy. The two factions, Stanton Anthony and Blackwell Stone, which had split on the issue of the 14th and 15th Amendments, were reunited in 1890. In 1892, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had grown disillusioned about the ballot's potential power to liberate women and ceded the presidency of the National American Women's Suffrage Association to her colleague, colleague Susan B. Anthony. During the second year of Anthony's term, the NAWSA passed a resolution which was a variation of Blackwell's racist and class-biased argument of more than a century earlier. Resolved, that without expressing any opinion on the proper qualifications for voting, we call attention to the significant facts that in every state there are more women who can read and write than the whole number of illiterate male voters, more white women who can read and write than all Negro voters, more American women who can read and write than all foreign voters so that the enfranchisement of such women would settle vexed questions of male by of rule by whether of homegrown or foreign born production quote. This resolution cavalierly dismissed the rights of black and immigrant women along with the rights of their male relations. Moreover, It it pointed to a fundamental betrayal of democracy that could no longer be justified by the old expediency argument. Implied in the logic of this resolution was an attack on the working class as a whole and a willingness, whether conscious or not, to make common cause with the new monopoly capitalists whose indiscriminate search for profits knew no human bounds. In passing the 1893 resolution, the suffragists might as well have announced that if they— as white women of the middle class and bourgeois, were not given the power of the vote, they would rapidly subdue the three main elements of the U.S. working class, black people, immigrants, and the uneducated native white workers. It was these three groups of people whose labor was exploited and whose lives were sacrificed by the Morgans, Rockefellers, Mellons, Vanderbilts, by the new class of monopoly capitalists who were ruthlessly establishing their industrial empires. They controlled the immigrant workers in the North as well as the former slaves and the poor white laborers who were operating the new railroad, mining and steel industries in the South. Terror and violence compelled black workers in the South to accept slave-like wages and working conditions that were frequently worse than slavery. This was the logic behind the rising waves of lynchings and the pattern of legal disenfranchisement in the South. In 19 in 1893, the year that fatal NAWSA resolution, the Supreme Court reversed the Civil Rights Act of 1875. With this decision, Jim Crow and Lynch Law, a new mode of racist enslavement, received judicial sanction. Indeed, three years later, the Plessy v. Ferguson decision announced the, quote, separate but equal, end quote, doctrine, which consolidated the South's new system of racial segregation. The last decade of the 19th century was a critical moment in the development of modern racism, its major institutional supports, as well as its attendant ideological justifications. This was also the period of imperialist expansion into the Philippines, Hawaii, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. The same forces that sought to subjugate the peoples of these countries were responsible for the worsening plight of black people and the entire U.S. working class. Racism nourished those imperialist ventures, and was likewise conditioned by imperialism, strategies and apologetics. On November 12, 1898, the New York Herald ran stories about the U.S. presence in Cuba, the, quote, race riot, end quote, in Phoenix, South Carolina, and the massacre of black people in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Wilmington Massacre was the most murderous of an entire series of organized mob attacks on black people during that period. According to a black minister at that time, Wilmington was, quote, Cuba's kindergarten of ethics and good government, end quote, as it was also proof of the profound hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy in the Philippines. In 1899, the suffragists were quick to furnish evidence of their consistent loyalty to the avaricious monopoly capitalist. As the dictates of racism and chauvinism had shaped the NAWSA's policy toward the domestic working class, they accepted without question the new feats of U.S. imperialism. At their convention that year, Anna Garland Spencer delivered an address entitled, quote, duty to the women of our new possessions, end quote, our new possessions. During the discussion, Susan B. Anthony did not attempt to conceal her anger, but as it turned out, She was not angry about the seizures themselves. She had been, quote, overflowing with wrath ever since the proposal was made to engraft our half barbaric form of government on Hawaii and other new possessions, end quote. And then here, I want to take a moment to reflect on some of the things that we just read through in those passages. I think. one of the things that stands out to me the most is this timeline that we have that Angela Angela Davis is painting for us and as we're getting to the end of the 1800s up up until maybe a chapter ago the majority of this book was about the conditions which existed specifically for black women during the times of uh of slavery in 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 chattel slavery in this country and then we've got into in this last chapter or two, the beginnings of Reconstruction and the endings of uh, chattel slavery. And one of the things that was a primary uh, topic was black suffrage and black people getting the right to vote, black people uh, petitioning to make sure that You black that just simply being black would not eliminate you from having the right to vote. And we're seeing here in this chapter how as we get to the end of the 1800s, that those things that were struggled for for by black people have been repealed. And you're beginning to see why Frederick Douglass claimed that it was so important for black people to get the vote for black men to get the vote even if it meant black men getting the vote before women got the vote, specifically white women got the vote because of the conditions that existed for black people in the country and because of the dangers of the few gains that they had being pushed back. And so in the, in our last, in our previous chapter, we began to hear about some of the advancements that were taking place when it came to education for black women specifically uh, and black people as a whole. And as we are reading through this chapter, we begin to get to the Plessy versus Ferguson and Jim Crow period of times, which existed in our society when those things that were struggled for, like education for black people, equitable and equal education for black people, uh, those things that were struggled for, like uh, equitable and equal electoral uh, politics, political politi- electoral political or political electoral electoral rights uh the right for black men to be able to vote we get we're seeing that being repealed back towards the end of the 1800s uh, beginning of the 1900s and for me the importance of understanding this this time period is that it points out to you how you can never be complacent not that these people were complacent or satisfied with Uh, Any gains that we are are made in the society, as long as it is not a gain that gets us to equitability and that gets us to equitability around the board. And so it was always going to be. uh, A risk that was going to be ran by black people uh, or a risk that was ran as long as black people were in this country, that. Some of those things that they had struggled to get rid of when it came to slavery, though, some of those conditions and some of the advancements that they were struggling to make during Reconstruction, that some of those things would get pushed back and would get repealed back and. So I just to me, that's just one of the things that's important as we get to the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. You see those steps, those steps back happening again regularly in American history. Black people and people of color and subjugated and marginalized groups have taken one step forward or two steps forward or three steps forward. And a lot of times in the history of this country around the corner from those steps forward have been uh three steps back or four steps back or five steps back. And we've seen even in just some of the working conditions that Angela Davis is pointing out for black people and black women specifically during this time, some of the working conditions had became worse after slavery was over with. So even though the abolition of slavery was two steps forward because of the racism that still was existing in the society, because of the overwhelming capitalism that was existing in the society. And now because of the imperialism that's beginning to, uh, to, exist in this society the working conditions for people for black people black women specifically were worse than they once were in some cases under slavery the and so i just think that 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 is something that has to be articulated regularly is that often follow uh, often two steps forward in this country for people of color have been followed by four steps backwards uh, that was pointed out there Okay, hold on one second, trying to figure out where we are at. Okay, Anthony consequently advanced the demand with all the force of her wrath, quote, that the ballot be given to the women of our new possessions upon the same term as to the men, end quote, as if women in Hawaii and Puerto Rico should demand the right to be victimized by U.S. imperialism on an equal basis with their men. During this 1899 convention of the NAWSA, a revealing contradiction emerged. While the suffragists invoked their, quote, duty to the women of our possessions, end quote, a black woman's appeal for a resolution against Jim Crow went entirely unheeded. The black suffragist, Lottie Wilson Jackson, was admitted to the convention because the whole state was Michigan, one of the few chapters welcoming black women into the suffrage association. During her train trip to the convention, Lottie Jackson had suffered the indignities of the railroad's segregationist policies. Her resolution was very simple, quote, that colored women ought not to be compelled to ride in smoking cars and that suitable accommodation should be provided for them, end quote. As the convention's presiding officer, Susan B. Anthony brought the discussion on the black woman's resolution to a close. Her comments assured the overwhelming defeat of the resolution, quote, we women are a helpless, disenfranchised class. Our hands are tied. While we are in this condition, it is not for us to go passing resolutions against railroad corporations or anybody else. Quote. The meaning of this incident was far deeper than the issue of whether or not to send an official letter protesting a railroad company's racist policies. In refusing to defend their black sister, the NAWSA symbolically abandoned the entire black people at the moment of their most intense suffering since emancipation. This gesture definitively established the suffrage association as a potentially reactionary political force which would cater to the demands of white supremacy. And then I I, want to point out here, too, I think that that's something that is still very much in existence with a lot of political parties. With a lot of uh, businesses, organizations, uh, industries, institutions in this society because of how strong the racist culture is in this society. A lot of times. For political advantageous reasons, for financial advantageous reasons, you will see businesses, individuals, institutions, political parties, uh capitulate to white supremacist ideology, capitulate to white supremacist thought patterns, capitulate to white supremacist demands. And a lot of times for some people it's 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 hard to understand how uh certain things that are just accepted as normal or mainstream are rooted in white supremacy or are rooted in racism. People think that you're just uh, the kid who cried wolf or the person who cried wolf and you're just uh, calling racism at, at every turn. But the truth of the matter is we live in a society that is deeply embedded in racism. And nine times out of ten, if you are doing what is the status quo or what is uh, the mainstream action or you are engaging in mainstream thought pattern, a lot of times that there are – Rooted in white supremacy. It's rooted in racism. And so at this point in time, the railroad corporations being segregated and forcing black people, black women to to sit in the smoking car area was normal thought, was mainstream thought, was status quo thought and and so we see here that the NAWSA didn't want to push against that. They didn't want to alienate people who were buying into that uh to that thought pattern, to that mainstream thought pattern. And so again, we have to as as activists as community members we have to begin to do the job of being uh, thermostats not simply just taking the temperature of the room or taking the climate of the society but willing to take the chance to try to adjust it and to try to say that uh these things that have been accepted for so long are not going to be accepted anymore even if that means alienating uh some people the NAWSA's evasion of the issue of racism posed by Lottie Jackson's resolution would indeed encourage the expression of anti-black prejudices within the organization. Objection. All right. That last that last segment I was doing got cut off a little bit abruptly. Let's pick up where we left off at. <clears throat> The NAWSA's evasion of the issue of racism posed by Lottie Jackson's resolution would indeed encourage the expression of anti-black prejudices within the organization. Objectively, an open invitation had been extended to Southern women who were not about to relinquish their commitment to white supremacy. At best, this noncommittal posture on the struggle for black equality constituted an acquiescence to racism and at worst. It was a deliberate incentive on the part of an influential mass organization for the violence and devastation spawned by the white supremacist forces of the times. Susan B. Anthony should not, of course, be held personally responsible for the suffrage movement's racist errors. But she was the movement's most outstanding leader at the turn of the century and her presumably, quote, neutral, end quote, public posture toward the fight for black equality did indeed bolster the influence of racism within the NAWSA. Had Anthony seriously reflected on racism, excuse me, had Anthony seriously reflected on the findings of her friend, Ida B. Wells, she might have realized that a noncommittal stand on racism implied that lynchings and mass murders by the thousands could be considered a neutral issue. By 1899, Wells had completed an enormous amount of research on lynchings and had published her tragically astounding results. Over the previous 10 years, between one and two hundred officially recorded lynchings had occurred on an annual basis. In 1898, Wells created something of a public stir by directly demanding that President McKinley order federal intervention in the lynching case of a South Carolina postmaster. In 1899, when Susan B. Anthony urged the defeat of the anti Jim Crow resolution, black people massively denounced President McKinley's encouragement of white supremacy. The Massachusetts branch of the colored national league charged that McKinley had been apologetically silent during the reign of terror in Phoenix, South Carolina. And he failed to intervene when black people were massacred in Wilmington, North Carolina. During his trip South, they told McKinney quote, you preached patience, industry moderation to your long suffering black fellow citizens and patriotism, jingoism, and imperialism to your white ones, end quote. While McKinley was in Georgia, a mob broke into a prison, seized five black men, and, quote, almost in your hearing, before your eyes, they were atrociously murdered. Did you speak? Did you open your lips to express horror of the awful crime, which out-barbarized barbarism and stained through and through with indelible infamy before the world, your country's justice, honor, and humanity? End quote. And not a presidential word was uttered about one of the period's most notorious lynchings, the burning that year of Sam Hose in Georgia. Quote, he was taken one quiet Sunday morning from his captors and burned to death with indescribable and hellish cruelty in the presence of cheering thousands of the so-called best people of Georgia, men, women and children who had gone forth on a Christian Sabbath to the burning of a human being as to a country festival and holiday of innocent enjoyment and amusement, end quote. Countless historical documents confirm the atmosphere of racist aggressions, as well as the powerful changes, challenges emanating from black people during the year 1899. An especially symbolic document is the call issued by the National Afro-American Council urging black people to observe June 2nd as a day of fasting and prayer. Published in the New York Tribune, this proclamation denounced the unjustified and indiscriminate arrest which leave men and women easy prey for mobs of, quote, ignorant, vicious, whiskey-besided men, end quote, who, quote, torture, hang, shoot, butcher, dismember, and burn. End quote. It was thus not even a question of reading the handwriting on the wall. The reign of terror had already descended upon black people. How could Susan B. Anthony claim to believe in human rights and political equality and at the same time counsel the members of her organization to remain silent on the issue of racism, bourgeois ideology and particularly its racist ingredients? must really possess the power of dissolving real images of terror into obscurity and insignificance and of fading horrible cries of suffering human beings into barely audible murmurings and then silence. When the new century rolled around, a serious ideological marriage had linked racism and sexism in a new way. White supremacy and male supremacy, which had always had an easy courtship, openly embraced and consolidated the affair. During the first years of the 20th century, the influence of racist ideas was stronger than ever. The intellectual climate, even in progressive circles, seemed to be fatally infected with the rational notions about the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race. This escalated promotion of racist propaganda was accompanied by a similarly accelerated promotion of ideas implying female inferiority. If people of color, at home and abroad, were portrayed as incompetent barbarians, Women, white women, that is, were more rigorously depicted as mother figures whose fundamental raisin d'etre was the nurturing of the male of the spe- was the nurturing of the male of the species. I know I pronounced that wrong. Sorry about that. I think that's French. White women were learning that as mothers, they bore a very special responsibility in the struggle to safeguard white supremacy. After all, they were the, quote, mothers of the race, end quote. Although the term race allegedly referred to the, quote, human race, end quote, in practice, especially as the eugenics movement grew in popularity. Little distinction was made between, quote, the race, end quote, and quote, the Anglo-Saxon race, end quote. I think one of the things I want to point out here is. Is we see as we get into the 1900s or the beginning of the 1900s again how even though slavery is no longer in existence we see how capitalism imperialism uh, male supremacy and white supremacy are all becoming more deeply ingrained into mainstream society how they are all becoming the ideology of all of these things are becoming more part of the status quo and more and more people are becoming indoctrinated in these things and so i think that it's important to point out that even though the brutality and the, the sheer inhumaneness of slavery uh, is no longer in existence, of chattel slavery is no longer in existence, we still see the barbarism that is mob violence and mob lynchings existing. We still see and we begin to see the beginnings of police terrorism and mass incarceration in the way that a lot of these lynchings are connected to people who have been uh have fa- falsely have charges pressed against them or people who were inside of a jail who then a mob comes to the jail and takes out and then murders and kills and so even as early as 1900 and we've seen this sort of in the, we've seen some of this in the end of the 1800s as well but as we get to the 20th century the the dawn of the 20th century we see how the the violence is still very much part of the society that exists. And that violence is still being predominantly and disproportionately inflicted upon black people and people of color. And, and again, the 1900 is 2021, right now, 2022, excuse me, right now. And 1900 is 70 years. So I think the lifespan of, of, of people are is 77 years old in America, somewhere around there. So we're still within two lifespans two lifespans of people two life cycles of people uh and so i just think that those are things to important to point out when people start talking about how long ago some of these things were uh again a hundred years does feel like a very long time but uh it is it's people who are a hundred years old betty white just died a couple a week ago a week ago a couple of days ago betty white was almost 100 years old uh, and so They are. My grandfather is 82 years old. We're getting closer and closer to the reading about the time in which he was born and he lived. Uh, But even just for him uh, being 82 years old, it means that his parents lived in this time that we're reading about right now. His grandparents lived in some of the times that we read about before. And so we aren't drastically removed from these uh, experiences and from these ideologies and thought patterns and things of that nature and so i think that's another thing that's important to remember about these things why we have to struggle so hard to uh bring awareness and inform and educate people about uh some of the the history of this society in this country is because we are not far removed from that history uh, and then we're we're about at 30 minutes now so and i don't want to go over the 30 minute i mean we have already gone over 30 minute mark but i want to go too far over the 30 minute mark So we'll end this episode here and we will be back with another episode tomorrow. We'll finish up chapter seven and begin in chapter eight. All right. Share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to present people the opportunity to begin and further their journey in the struggle to end police, terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice.